Hi, everybody. This is Heather Vickery, and you have tuned into the Brave Files podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Before I tell you about this week's episode, I want to remind you that this week, right now, is Intentionally Brave Week in our Brave on Purpose Collective hosted in Facebook. This is a completely free seven-day training where we are helping you step out of fear and into bravery personally and professionally. It is such a fun, exciting week, and you can still join us. There are replays from the first couple of days. All you have to do is go to Facebook. Facebook.com slash groups slash Brave on Purpose, or just go into Facebook and search Brave on Purpose. And once you find us, join the group and you will be able to join the free live trainings every day at 2 p.m. Central now through Monday, the 18th of May. Okay, y'all. So listen, this week's episode is not a light and fluffy one. This week, we're talking about big, scary, heartbreaking things. And I want to let you know up front that this conversation is centered around incest and suicide. However, my guest, Nancy Allen, shares how she has grown through her trauma as a battle-scarred warrior of the human experience. Nancy says that sometimes you just need someone who can understand where you're coming from. And the truth of the matter is we all end up where we are because of where we've been. This is truly a beautiful conversation about bravery and resilience. So grab a cup of coffee or tea and sit with us. Here we go. Heartbreaking, integration, and yana. This is Heather Vickery, and you're listening to The Brave Files, stories from people living courageously. When we choose bravely in big and small ways, It powerfully elevates our lives. I hope these stories connect with you and encourage you to embrace bravery in every possible way, day after day. Together, we can build a movement of courageous living that enriches both our lives and our communities. And if you enjoy the show, I ask you to please share it with others. Maybe think of someone who you want to choose bravely right alongside you. Thanks for tuning in. Now here's the show. Hey, everybody. It's Heather Vickery. Welcome to this week's episode of the Brave Files podcast. Before we get started, I want to just give a quick word of warning. In this episode, we do discuss incest, abuse, and suicide. Please keep this in mind if there are children around or if these are topics that are too sensitive for you to listen to. We certainly understand. This week's guest is really an incredible human. After surviving as an incest relationship uh, father and daughter and being in the foster care system and then losing her husband to suicide, today's guest, Nancy Allen, shows us all what it takes to survive, but, but not just survive, to thrive. And she is an absolute inspiration. Nancy, thank you so much for being here with us. Heather, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yes, yes. So when I see stories like yours come across my desk for interviews, I have this sort of strange reaction. Part of me says, wow, I really want to talk to this person. I want to share this story um, and hope that it helps in your healing and in the healing of people who listen. And then part of me feels almost guilty or strange or voyeuristic in in wanting to bring all of this out. So my first question for you is why do you feel it's important to share your story publicly? 
So that's a good question. I look at things from the perspective of the more we talk about things, the more aware we are of things, the more it gets normalized. And when it gets normalized, people are more willing to take action and do something. By not speaking, by keeping the silence, that contributes to the isolation, the feelings of difference, and all of that. And it creates this shroud of secrecy that allows this type of thing to continue. Yeah. And so people suffer in silence. Thank you for that. I, I do agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. And we want to make it okay. I also wonder if I can't imagine anybody out there could be experiencing what you've been through and think this is okay and normal, but I've never, I've been very lucky to never be in any of these situations. So if somebody were to hear it and say, wait a minute, that didn't feel right to me. That's really not okay. And maybe get some help or do something to change the situation. Does that, that seem viable? Yes. And I think it's also about knowing that whether it's something that happened to you or it's something that you're suspicious about or just doesn't feel right, Mm, doing something, taking action can make a huge difference in someone's life who can't do it for themselves. Yeah, I appreciate that. You referred to yourself, and I just thought this um, was a really beautiful, eloquent way to introduce yourself to me. You said you were a battle-scarred warrior of the human experience, Mm -hmm. which... We're going to learn more about you. Um, It's a beautiful writing way to say that, you know, this is your human experience. And yet we're hoping that this is not most people's human experiences. So can you share with us a little, and we've, we've let listeners know sort of what you've been through, and we're going to get into the specifics, but what was your life like prior to the incestual relationship with your father? So I grew, I have seven brothers and sisters. So wow. I grew up in a large. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I grew up in a large uh, first generation American Italian family. So I was raised Catholic. Okay. Um, very connected to the extended family. Lived with my grandmother in a two story home where she was on the first floor and we were on the second and third. So um, very connected to that extended family environment. And like I said, I had seven brothers and sisters. We're um, 12 years apart between the eight of us. So it was a very close in age. That's a yeah. lot of pregnant right in a row for your exactly. mom. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we did a lot together. Um, we'd have our own little teams. and Sure. It, it, it's almost, it was almost as if, in hindsight, it's, it's a little different to think about it, but it was almost as if you didn't need anybody else because you had enough just with your group and your family. Right. So there was very limited outside interaction other than a couple of close family friends of my parents and their, where we connected with their families, and then also my aunt and uncle of my father's brother. Okay. But it was a loving, it was a, well, it was, it was a strict home. Um, if you think about Catholic shame, <laughs> uh, yes, I am and, not Catholic. Thank goodness. It's just, it's mind boggling to me to think about be having that level of shame ingrained in you. It's not yeah. something that I can imagine. But it was a it was a. I mean, th- my father was abusive physically throughout my childhood, but it wasn't something that you really thought of as different. 
Um, I mean, I'm in my mid-50s, so this would have been in the late 60s, early 70s. So when you say abusive, um, does that mean he spanked or does it mean he beat? Uh, there are a couple of instances of, of I would call it beatings. Um, he would come out with his belt kind of thing. And he had a violent temper that if you got him on the wrong side on the wrong moment, that kind of thing, it could be explosive. So, was he selective who he was abusive towards? Um, he tended to be more physical with my brothers. Okay. But he did, um, he didn't spare the girls. Let me put it that way. Right. Okay. And... Were there any signs leading up to um, the, I hesitate to use the word relationship, but I'm not sure what else to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, Between the two of you, did this sort of come out of nowhere? Did something lead up to it? Um, What what was that experience like? So, I mean, I very much love my father. I mean, there was no question. And I was more distant from my mother who my grandmother, my father's mother, my grandmother was very involved in our upbringing. And she kind of pushed my mother out of the picture. So she created this distance between my mother and the kids, even though she lived with us. I mean, I mean, she was my mother. We were living as an intact family. But I didn't see my mother as an ally. I saw that in my father and my grandmother. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have that much interaction with my mother because she worked a 3 to 11 shift. Okay. Wow. She was a nurse practitioner. So, you know, and my grandmother used to use that against her, is that she was never here. You know, your grandmother's taking care of you. I'll take care of you. Your mother doesn't love you, that kind of stuff. So wow. she really set my mother up um, to be pushed aside by her own kids. And I, I don't know where this popped into my mind, but so this was your father's mother you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just hearing you describe her behavior makes me wonder if your father was also abused. So years later, I did learn that my father was abused, not by his mother, but by his aunt. Okay. It wasn't something readily, largely discussed. His father was very strict in terms of the way that he disciplined. He was a barber and he very often used his barber strap. Wow. So it was that, it was a, I mean, there were a few stories that my father had told about, um, different time instances where he was pretty significantly beaten. So I, I think some of it was that's the way that he was raised. Okay. So it sounds like it was pretty easy for him to start doing simple inappropriate things, simple being a subjective word, because of the close relationship that you had. Yeah. So for me, it started... I was 12 when my father had always had heart issues since he was like 27 years old. Mm. And when I was 12, he had a a significant uh, heart situation where he ended up having a quadruple heart bypass. And he was one of the first ones that were done. This is 1977. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he was in the hospital for a long period of time. It put a big financial strain on the family because he was a podiatrist that had his own practice. So his not working Mm. had a significant impact. So my mother was working extra hours. My older um, siblings were contributing to the extent that they could. And so my role became that when he came home to recuperate, when I would come home from school, my mother would go off to work. And I was instructed to, you know, keep an eye on dad. 
um, get him whatever he needs, check in on him, give him back rubs, do whatever. And that's how it really started. I became his nursemaid. And hearing things like give him back rubs, whatever, that's a very intimate thing to do, even if it's, you know, father, daughter, you know, lovingly, um, mm-hmm. that, that leads things to, okay. Um, so I will let you guide in how, how much you want to share it. What happened from there? And I know that you entered into the foster care system. So obviously somebody knew what happened. So share a little bit about how it escalated and then how do people find out about it? So I, it started as back rubs. It, it turned into um, oral sex, and then it became uh, much more than that. As my father's um, health improved, he started uh, getting more involved, more active, starting taking some walks. And I would go along with him, um, and I, would, I became his confidant. Mm-hmm. And so I saw what was going on as um, I knew it wasn't right, but at the same point in time, I felt special because he was singling me out from the other kids. So I have to ask, how does a father ask his daughter to perform oral sex? So there was one day where I came into his room. He called me upstairs and I came into his room and this was different in that he was laying on his bed like usual when he wanted me to give him a back rub or his whatever. This was different in that this time he he was not dressed. He was naked. And I stood in the doorway, and he just encouraged me to come in and to say, um, it's okay, um, really in a comforting, soothing, you know, nothing stern. And I, I, my brothers and sisters, there were five of us living at the home at that time. My other four brothers and sisters were outside, and I can hear them playing outside. And I'm like... In that moment, it was a decisive moment where, do I run? Do I what? And I, there was there was no part of me that just I there was a feeling, a gut feeling that this wasn't right. But at the same time, I was taught to obey. Sure. I was, you know, I yeah. was, I, I was I, my goal, my role was to give my father comfort. Yeah. So I went into the room and I proceeded to give him a back rub. He, you know, he was laying on his stomach, kind of thing, and. He just kept asking me to go lower and lower and then just started asking me to, to touch his penis. And from there, it, that's how it progressed. Wow. And, yeah. I can't imagine. I'm so sorry, Nancy. You know, I, 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 well, first of all, I appreciate that. But it, it's, it's so much a part of, um, how do I put this? I don't want to normalize it because that's not that's not a, a good thing to do, but it is so part of the way that I was brought up, and this wasn't a one-time event. This was years and years and years of abuse. So, if I sound um, dis, uh, disaffected or not affected, I, I, that's not what's going on. No, it sounds it's, like survival to me. Yeah, it's a coping mechanism, yeah. and it's also a. Um, it's been so, inter- I've integrated it, right? Yeah. I'm not ashamed of it anymore. Good I know where where I am. I mean, people can, can take pot shots that I should have done something different. I should have known better. I should have, you know, all the shouldas. It's not in my vocabulary at this point in my life. It is what it is. It's what happened. And 
it's I'm acceptant of who I am and where I've come from. That's a very brave stance to have. I so honor that in you. Um, And obviously we don't want to normalize it, but it is your story. It is Mm -hmm. your truth. And we all end up where we are because of where we've been for the good Mm -hmm. or evil, for bad or or good. Um, Okay. Do you believe that you were the only one your father was targeting at this time? So the answer to that is at the time, yes. Okay. Um, but not in, in truth. So let me let me let me see if I can back up or maybe move forward. It so the, that initial phase lasted for about a year. It really started with me just after my thirteenth birthday when I was in May. Okay. And the following, I guess, early spring of the next year. So this is nineteen seventy-eight, and nineteen seventy-eight is the first year of mandatory reporting in Massachusetts, and. I, I, I knew that my father had now started to go back to work. He was working part-time in his office and that I had worked part-time with him in my free time. So I knew summer was coming and I knew that my father was going to be, I was going to be much more available to him mm-hmm. by working with him. And I was terrified at that point. Up until this point, I spent a lot of time where really recognizing that things weren't correct, weren't right. And I would spend a lot of time Literally, if I came home first, I would be up in the attic um, waiting hiding. for somebody else, yeah. hiding, yeah. waiting for somebody else to come home um, so that it, that I, I wasn't there by myself. So I spent a lot of time in isolation. And in that time, what I did is I studied. I found that my coping mechanism was really problem solving. So I, I, I'm a math geek. And I would do (laughs) complex math problems hiding in an attic because that's focused my mind and it passed the time. And so I learned to, I became a good student simply because I had all this time that I was just working and doing stuff. And so I became very recognized by my teachers. I was a very top student. And as the summer approached, my teachers recognized a change in me. In behaviors, um, I was more withdrawn, and one of them reported, and I never knew who, who reported it, but one of them reported it to the school guidance counselor, who called me into his office a few times. It's a good teacher uh, to be that uh, aware. Yep. Yeah. And then I, 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 I refused at this point. Now I'm thinking my father had warned me that you know if I said anything, people wouldn't understand. They'd break us up. You'd be the, the cause of the family mm. um, breaking apart. And it'd be all on you, right? Traditional so, abuser conversation. Exactly. And I believed it. So I I didn't say anything. And so he referred me to a female guidance counselor, thinking maybe I'd talk better with a female, but that didn't work either. So she eventually referred me to a, uh, a counselor. And I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm trapped. I don't know what to do. So I go. Um, my mother took me. And then and what is your mother thinking when you're this mother you're not very close to the teachers and the counselors say something's off what's your mother think So again I got my mother wasn't an ally so that continued but I think my mother was thinking that it was more related to my we had moved away from my grandmother. We had bought our first home a few years prior to that. Hmm. And it was a big adjustment for all of us. Um, my three oldest sisters 
uh, two older sisters and older brother had moved out and kind of gone on their way. And so it was just the five younger um, still in the home. And I was kind of put in charge of, you know, the kids and, and making sure that people got things done and cooking dinner. I was cooking dinner at 10 years old. So I think my mother thought it was more of an adjustment to the move, the lifestyle changes, the family changes, and didn't okay. think beyond that. That's be my guess. Okay. All right. So your mother took you to see the therapist. Mm-hmm. And I went for a couple of times. And I, I didn't really talk or, or talked around things. And my mother's in the room. I was never alone with the therapist, which was bizarre to me. So it never came up. I went over to my older sister's house, who I was very close to. And she was living in now the apartment that my that we had resided in earlier. So she was living in the family apartment above my grandmother's house. And she asked me, why was I seeing someone? And for some reason, I just felt like I could trust her. She went off to work. I was in an apartment by myself. And I wrote her a note. And I told her what my dad was doing. And my father picked me up from there and I went and I went home. Wow. My sister then called me when she found it and she said to me, the words that she said to me and I will never forget words, I'm sorry, I thought he stopped with me. He told me he stopped with me. So that's how I learned that so now I got multiple reactions going on. I've got this, wait a minute, he told me I was special. Uh, He lied to me. I'm not special. Right. And then I've got this, wait a minute, if you knew, why didn't you say something to me? What, what? I mean, there's so many conflicting, confusing emotions happening. So she called my therapist and she arranged to go to see my therapist with me the next day. And so she picked me up. My mother was away. She was in New Orleans on a bit on a, uh, a convention. And my mother, my grandmother was staying with us. And so I just remember going to the therapist and I couldn't speak. My sister basically became my voice and told the therapist what had happened. I was then asked to leave the room. My sister had a conversation with the therapist. And the next thing I know, I'm coming back into the room and this thing's snowballing. Absolutely. Into, okay, we need to call the Department of Social Services. We need to call the police. We need to, and this is what's going to happen. And it's totally out of my control. I've got no say in anything. And it's just like happening around me. And that night, um, we weren't allowed to stay with my sister because my father had a key. It was his mother's house. And so that night, they picked up my younger brother and sister as well. The police went to the home and picked them up. And my younger brother and sister and I, my younger brother and sister are twins, and we spent an, a night in an emergency foster home. What was that night like? It was the longest night of my life. Mm. Um, it was, I'm feeling, my, my younger brother and sister had no idea what was going on. They're just in tears. They're terrified. They're totally confused. They're, and I can't console them. And I'm at the same point in time, <laughs> equally as no idea what's happening. Just I, completely out of surroundings and just everything my father said was going to happen is happening. And it's all my fault. That's why I felt it was all my fault. Yeah, of course. 
And I remember oh. arriving at the foster home, and my sister, we went in my sister's car, uh, I don't know why, but in the back seat of her car, she used to have this, she had a couple of stuffed animals on her back shelf kind of thing over the trunk. And she had this little duck, a little stuffed yellow duck. And I remember just kind of going back into the car and grabbing the duck. And I don't know why, <laughs> it was just this comforting thing. And that night, it was about the duck. It was. <laughs> so my, my, they, they had two rooms. They had two of the kids of their own, and they had another foster child. And so they had the boys' room and the girls' room. And so my sister and I were in a room with two other girls that were their kids. And we were in bunk beds. And so I was on the bottom bunk. My other sister was on the top bunk. In the middle of the night, we could hear everybody else was sleeping. And my, I hear my sister crying. And so I just reached up. And she reached down, and we are kind of holding on to each other. And I had her come down and we were kind of cuddled together hanging together uh, all night and we had this duck and we're holding the duck and I don't know the duck represents sanity I don't know what <laughs> are you and still I, a fan of ducks I can totally see like you have a bathroom full of ducks or anything <laughs> <laughs> I am a fan of stuffed animals though <laughs> we find comfort in all sorts of strange places though that's a, that is a, a interesting side note and to let it be okay. Whatever it is that gives you comfort yeah. is okay to give you comfort. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So in the middle of the night, I hear my brother crying and, and he's at, at the entrance to the door and we're like, shh, come on in. So he ends up in bed with us as well. And so the three of us are in his twin bed with cuddled together, just holding each other with the duck. Of course. <laughs> and in the morning, um, it was like, it, we were afraid that if, you know, people found us together, that somebody would, you know, we didn't know what would happen Make something next, inappropriate. Right? right. Yeah. Right. So I handed my brother my the, the duck, and he gave him back, and, and he went off into the other room, and my sister moved up to her bunk, and we just spent the night, the rest of the couple hours, whatever, till morning, just holding on to each other's hand, you know, up and down. But Literally makes me want to cry. <laughs> I can picture that in my head. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, the next morning, I get picked up to go to court, and my brother and sister didn't. And I remember my sister, I guess before that, I was with my sister. We had gone to the courthouse before the police got involved. And I remember sitting with my sister, and this is payphone time, right? Mm -hmm. Making call after call to a number of people where she was trying to get someone to take us for the night. uh, Relatives, friends, whoever, to take us for the night so that we didn't have to go into foster care. And nobody said, nobody would take us. I can't imagine that. So that's how we ended up would, in an emergency I foster care. I can't imagine saying no to protecting. What were they afraid of? Or did they, they just want to not get involved? They didn't want to get involved. I am really grateful that for the most part, that line has changed. Yes. Culturally. that That is, most people don't do that anymore because that's a really horrifying way to behave. Yep. So I felt... Again, it's my fault. I'm rejected. I'm, I'm, you know, all this blame is on me. All the shame is on me. So we go that next day that I got picked up from the foster home and I was taken to court and I was asked to sit outside for a while. And I, I eventually got called in to the courtroom and I, there was probably 10, 15 people in the courtroom and the judge is sitting up high and my parents and a couple of people who I didn't know, who I later found out were their attorneys, were on the right side. And the, it wasn't even the same caseworker. It was somebody different. I guess it was her supervisor. And my sister 
and were at the on the left side, and somebody else I didn't know, and then my oldest sister and her husband, who had their own home, were way in the back, and there were a couple of other people, but I don't know who they were, and I was asked to come to the front and stand there in front of the judge, and the judge just kept asking me, "Did you write a note? What does the note say? Did your father do this to you? What did your father do to you?" And I, at this point, I lost my voice. I didn't say a word. All I could do was look down at the floor. I couldn't even look at the judge who's now literally, I mean, I'm a kid. I'm 13 years old. And actually, I was 14 at that point. Um, And and he's up. He's sitting up high. It's <laughs> and I'm being asked these questions in front it's of all terrifying. these people. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. Like what happened to taking young children into private quarters and they asking didn't have them? That then. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So in any event, I didn't say anything, and I was just asked to step outside again, and I did. And I, I don't know how long much time passed. It felt like eternity. And they came out and they escorted my father away. And my mother's in tears, and my oldest sister, who had been in the back of the courtroom, who again, her and her husband, who had their own home, basically was consoling my mother, saying, they'll be okay, they'll be with me, um, we're going to take care of this, we'll figure it out. So apparently what had happened was the court had agreed to give custody to the state, and my sister, oldest sister, was became my foster parent um, in a kinship foster placement. Okay. And we stayed with her and her husband for about, three months or so. Okay. And how was that? In this point in time, so again, I'm here I am believing everything that my father had said was going to happen, yeah. happened. Of course. And in my mind, the court reaffirmed for me that I was equally at fault oh my because gosh. we were both pulled from the home. He was, he was at, he was removed and he lived in his office. And how, why I, was he not was, in jail? Can I ask the obvious question? My sister corroborated the story with her own, and because he, he was a he was a doctor, yeah, and a people white man, be, and people didn't believe that uh, highly educated professionals at that point in time could, you know, mm. that he could be re- rehabilitated. He was ordered into court ordered therapy, and he was removed from the home as well. Three months later, somehow all these psychiatrists. Um, but I was given the same thing. So I believed that I was given the same punishment that he was. So I was at fault again. So it just reaffirmed that for me. Anyway, he was, or he, three months later, we were both allowed back into the home. Oh my God. And I wasn't asked if, I was asked if I wanted to come home. I wasn't asked if I wanted him there. Right. I'm not sure what I would have said, honestly. And again, your mother is not an ally, but what does she say during all of this? Nothing? She's she's trying Good to keep Catholic together. <laughs> she's trying to keep it together. She's um, trying to, you know, she's working because this whole financial issue component here. Sure. There's um, she's at a loss. She's got new people that she can confide in. She's in therapy as well as part of the family. Um, and it was all this kind of okay. It's done. It's over. Let's just make it go away. We're not going to talk about this again. And that's how it was treated. It's not how it works, unfortunately. And within a few months of being back home, my father sat it up again. And um, this time it, it, it turned to rape. So you were, you were not a willing, not, and I understand before 
that you were not a willing participant because you were a child and couldn't be, but there was no physical forcing, right? There was just coercion. Yeah, at this point, it had trans- transitioned. Oh, my um, God. There was much more, it was more violent, and over the years, it became more and more so. But at 15, he got me pregnant. Oh, my God. And God. I was on a school trip down in Washington, D.C. with my prior teacher, and I was having some really, really bad cramping. And I got taken to the emergency room, and um, I was told there that I was pregnant, and I ended up telling my teacher that. And I'm like, I, I, I can't be pregnant. I haven't even had a date. How can I be pregnant? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Oh, Nancy. So, again, now another person knows. And I didn't. Nobody asked. That's amazing. You know? Even in the and, 70s, that's amazing to me. And so my, my, I remember coming home that night. I, I ended up catching up with my group because they were at the airport. They had taken off without me. And I remember catching up with my group. And my, my teacher's like, you're sitting beside me. Yeah, you, we're going to make sure that you, you know, somebody's waiting at the airport for you. And when I get to the airport and, and home... My teacher's pissed. Good for your teacher. He's expecting an ambulance, or at least my parents. They're not there. So he calls them, and they tell them, just go back on the bus, and we'll pick her up when we <laughs> the school. Um, and but your teacher knows that your father got you pregnant. Yeah, I, I didn't say that directly to him. I, I said to him, I don't know how I'm pregnant because I haven't even had a date. Okay. I, and I, but I did not say to him that this is okay. my, no. Okay. I, I didn't say that. Back then, I think it would be very unusual for someone to infer that type of abuse, yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just denying, you know. That you've and, had a relationship. Yep. Yeah. And in my mind, I hadn't. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But then I see that as this isn't something that, you know, I end up with coming back into the home and I'm in. So my bedroom is the next bedroom to my father. And I get here that night. My father going off. I mean, he was just crazy mad. And I remember him swearing and yelling to my mother, she's a, she's a effing whore, and I didn't even touch that bitch since, since we moved back in. And my mother basically was just saying, calming him down. We'll do, I'll take it to the clinic in the morning. It'll be okay. I'll deal with it. And I, I honestly don't know whether I miscarried, whether it was a false positive or what, but um, it just kind of went away. Went away. It, yeah. That is uh, probably a very lucky thing. Yeah, that you didn't have to make any few further decisions. Yeah, but at that point, now again, now I know my parent, my mother's not on my side. My mother's, you know, defending my father. My mother never asked if it was oh his. My God. Um. So, I mean, and to, to, at this point, you can't say that she didn't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Of course not. Right. Yeah. Um, nobody else asked. <laughs> so it, it was just kind of this stuff it down, make it go away. If we talk about it, if we bring it up, it's going to get worse. So that became this shroud of silence where it enabled my father to continue and I was terrified of being taken away again. So I never said anything again. And he continued. And he continued into. So I met my, who would then become my husband when I was 15 years old. And he was my first and only boyfriend. And we, uh, you know, young love, we were two kind of troubled kids that had come together. And we just, 
we were best friends. We, we, you know, we were dating. We were, you know, and I, I didn't want to lose him. And I, there was no way. And he was the one thing that made any sense to me in my life. Sure. And so back that meant having sex with him. That meant doing whatever I had to do not to be pulled again. Wow. So it meant whatever my father needed to do, fine. And I didn't protest. Oh I didn't. God. I didn't fight him, and I didn't tell anyone else. And just kind of, it became this compartmentalization perspective that this was just a part of my life. It was just. Oh my goodness! And your father died when you were twenty-eight, right? Yeah. When did the abuse stop? So I, I, I put myself through college. Um, Good for I, you. I went through a co-op program, and I knew, having watched my older siblings, that my way out was to become financially independent and to be able to just get away from it. So I did a five-year co-op program where I was working full-time and going to school full-time, and I completed a five-year program in two and a half years. Whoa, (laughs) and living at home with your parents at this time. I was. I went to school in New York. Okay. Okay. So you got I, out of the house. I got out of the house. Right. Um, so, I when I came back, my I, I got married when I was twenty-one, just after I was twenty-one, as soon as I graduated college, and we were waiting on an apartment. Or we had an apartment. We were waiting on a condo that we were purchasing, and so we moved back in with my parents for a bit. Oh my God. Yeah. So there were a few instances after I was married, where. Um, it continued. So I would say in my, into my early so 20s. when you moved back in as a married adult, your father continued to rape you? Yes. And your husband had no idea? He had no idea. That's he knew. He knew that the early instance of before court, um, but he didn't know that it had continued. Your father obviously just knew exactly how to manipulate you. He was a master, and it was this cat and mouse game. Oh I mean, God. it was this—it was this crazy situation, truly cat and mouse. And uh, you know, I, I, it's like he—I think that. So I—I I, I play too. I mean, I, I don't use it in a, in a malicious way, but I learned from the master. <laughs> I've used it in business now, right? It's how to get people to do what you want them to do, how to appeal to their their senses, how to, you know, read a situation. I, I know how to observe people's body language. I know when somebody's not sitting well with something, even though they're not saying something. Mm-hmm. Because it's one of the things that I learned is to watch and observe and connect the pieces. Um, and, and so we had this cat and mouse situation. What a wonderful skill to have if you're a good person. <laughs> but yeah. what a terrifying <laughs> skill to have if you are not a good person. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he wasn't, um, he never stopped verbally and emotionally abusing, but physically abusing. It was in my early twenties and sexually abusing. He was in my early twenties. And then he died. Fortunately, when you were fairly young. Not young enough, but... Yeah, I had two kids, um, and I was 28 years old. I had my own home. So what happens inside of you? How do you feel when the threat is actually gone? So the night before he died, 
he he was having another quadruple bypass, and so he called me the night before, and knew that he the chances of him dying on the table were pretty high, so he called me and he I, I'm listening to him and he he asked me to forgive him. He said I'm sorry. I, I don't I can't explain what I did. I'm horribly sorry for what I've done to you, and please forgive me. What did you say? Nothing. Good for you. I handed the phone to my husband and I walked away. I couldn't I couldn't give him that relief. He did not deserve that. And you were I, not I just, required to give it. I, I couldn't do it. So, but he died the next day. And that has now become, it took a long time to get there, but that has now become my me day. And what I mean by that is it, it's the day that I celebrate me. I love that. And I allow me to feel whatever I feel, to do whatever I want to do, to be with people, to not be with people. And early on, it was a big deal for me to be able to allow that release for myself because I was always the person that was giving, 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 giving. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I love that you gave yourself permission for that day to be you. It's almost like your emancipation day. It's it was like my rebirth. Is the way I, yeah. yeah. I don't celebrate my, uh, I don't really celebrate my birthday, but I celebrate my me day. <laughs> That's amazing. Did you ever tell your husband everything? So when he died. Your dad. My, when your dad died. My father died. My world just imploded. All the compartmentalization where I was a highly functioning, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an actuary. I'm a, I'm a manager of a team. I've got two kids. My husband's a stay-at-home parent. He's, he loved, you know, he was a great, great dad. And, and so I, my world just exploded. I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. I was having nightmares. And I know now that it was PTSD, but I didn't understand it then. It was just imagery and overwhelming feelings and just, and I was suicidal. I couldn't hold it together. It's just too much, probably system overload. And so I, my husband had the two kids out and I was had a really bad night and I remember sitting on the couch with all the pills that were in the house and the realization was I can't let my kids find me or not grow up without that without me and so I I called a, a place that had an emergency treatment and they I eventually ended up in an acute psychiatric hospital where I stayed for a few weeks wow. and that's when it came out to my husband and it it was this it had to come out and he was so supportive he was so he felt horrible that he didn't know that he didn't do anything that he didn't I mean so he's got all this whole guilt on himself which wasn't fair but we ended up spending a year and a half kind of working through all of it my mother she was living you know um 800 miles away in Maryland and she was driving up and staying and it, she came to the therapy sessions and I 
let it all out. And I specifically said to her, where the hell were you? Why didn't you do something? And she didn't have an answer. But over time, my mother and I got to a point where I recognized that she was just as abused as I was, was just in a different way. And that she, maybe not physically, but certainly that emotional kind of submissive kind of perspective. And I suspect that she was also physically and sexually abused as a child herself. So she was just completely at a loss. Wow. So we became friends over time. She was never really um, a, a mother in the sense of a nurturing mother to me. But she became my friend and she was able to be a grandmother to my children. And she moved in with me for a while. Wow! <laughs> so we really, so we really connected. Tiny silver which was lining good. there. That's a yeah. bonus. How did y- your lived experience alter the way you parent? Wow, that's a great question. Um, so, as I said, my husband was the stay-at-home parent, right? And there was a lot of reasons for that. <laughs> um, and I was terrified. And I'm two, sure you I, were. Yeah. I, you know, it's like I didn't understand and couldn't understand the why behind my dad. So if I've got his genes, how am I not like him? How am I? How? I mean, I have boys. How do I? You know, there was this real confused, you know, so it's almost kind of like avoidance becomes the way to, to deal with it. And. It was also this kind of throwing there in this mix of the financial components where a lot of why my mother left or didn't leave and why she was never home was around the financial components. So I swore to myself that I would never be financially dependent yeah. on someone. Yeah. So there was all this kind of mixed into it. But so we in my oldest was born in 89. And at that time. Dads didn't stay home with the kids. Right. No, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but he was a stay-at-home parent and he was the, so you know, was the Mr. Mom kind of time Good period. And he was, he was confident enough in his abilities and who he was that he was okay. He would take our sons to mom and me swim classes. I love that and he'd so be much. the only guy. I really do. <laughs> yep. So I think it influenced that I knew that I could not be the, the parent that was home, it influenced that I wanted to make sure that one of us was home, that we, had, that my kids had a parent that was there for them. It influenced the way that we discussed, openly talked about things. Yeah. Body parts are body parts. Good for you. Uh, there was no off-limit questions. There was no, I mean, it was just a, a part of life. But there were things that I also knew that as a parent that I could not do. I had difficulty bathing my children. Mm. And so my husband helped me with it because he would, we would do it together. Yeah. And so he made it okay. Because you were afraid of harming them. I was afraid of inappropriate touch. I was afraid of, you know, where are the boundaries? I don't know what the hell boundaries are. Yeah. Wow. And who's teaching you that? Where do you learn that? So my husband taught me how to parent. And equally as important, there were things that I just could not do. And he made it okay. He didn't hold it against me. He found ways to involve me, and he found ways to, where were my limits? What could I do? What couldn't I do? And he was amazing with it. With, like, so bathing was one of the things that I, and putting my kids to bed was another thing. I couldn't be in, you know, so couldn't I lay would in the bed with them. with them and snuggle yep. and that kind of thing. Yep. 
I mean, I could snuggle, but not in a bed. Right. So I would read with them downstairs. And then when it was time for bed, they would have a game and they would race upstairs. And, and he would put them to bed. So he was amazing in the sense that he intuitively knew and was accepting of where are the limits? What can we do? And he was open to talking about it and helping me through finding ways that I could participate and not holding the other ways that I couldn't against me. What a man. Yeah. He was an amazing man. It certainly sounds like it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you lost him to suicide. So we had, over the years, we had adopted to, we had advocated for children. He went, When he was working, he was working for kids that were in a residential treatment program. And so we had advocated for some, and, and they had become part of our lives. And he later became a, he worked with the mentally, um, can't come up with the, the correct terminology, mentally challenged yeah. adults. He... Uh, so he was this uh, giving. We ended up t- uh, fostering and then adopting two kids through the foster care system. It was kind of like, uh, I needed to do more. Yeah, I needed to give back. And he that. needed to do the same thing. But uh, so we, we lived as a family with four boys for a number of years. We were giving in the sense of I was very successful at work. I'm a, I'm a VP in an organization. And he... Um, he was the stay-at-home parent, and he found ways to contribute. So he ran a f- food bank for the school that we wow. volunteered full-time. He ran the food bank for the school that we, uh, my kids were in. So it was just a way of giving back. And when we had moved to Maine, um, we had moved into our second home um, as our primary home because we had done a four-stage search for a school that would fit our our twins' needs. We knew that we had adopted them. They were they were a special needs adoption. Yeah. And when we adopted them, we we knew that we would need to do what we needed to do for them. And and so we found a school that was in our backyard, in our second home. And so we moved up to Maine. And I was traveling then every other week. So wow. one week I would work from home. The second week I would be down in Atlanta, Georgia, because that's where the home office was with the company that I was working for. Okay. And I was away at work um, in Atlanta, and I got a call that I needed to get home because that something weird had happened that night. And so I started calling home. I can't get anybody. I try everybody's cell phones. I can't get anybody. Eventually, I ended up waking up one of the twins, and he he calls me back, and a few minutes later with his brother, and he says, "Dad's on the floor, and we can't get him up." Um, I was like. And some over time, my husband had his own demons that he was dealing with as well. Not the same thing, but had his own demons. And I think that's part of the reason why we connected sure. so well. Yeah, He was in therapy. Um, he had um, become an alcoholic. And he was drunk that night. And something happened. Uh, I still don't have the whole full story. Um, and my kids found him on the floor oh seizing that next morning. They were 14. And um, it started a whole, now another round of stuff. Trauma, yeah. Yeah. And it it took months for them to... Oh, to to find your parent like that is is horrifying. And they watched him die. Oh, my God. And then they probably have some misdirected guilt about not being able to save him, right? They did initially. I mean, it was six years ago at this point. How old and were your children at the time? 
14. The twins. The, the, yeah. the younger two were 14. Yeah. And my older ones were um, 22 and 24. Wow. And my older ones, I mean, I was a mess at this point. I mean, this had been the person who had stood beside me, had been my rock since I was 15 yeah. years old, who had been the sole person who I could really relate to, talk to, that understood me, that, that, that let me be okay, that let me shut off. Yeah. I, I, I didn't, I was always on guard. You know, as a survivor, I think that's one of the things that you go through is that you're always on hyper awareness. You're always you're always observing, looking around, making sure I don't do well in crowds um, because I need to see where the threat's coming from. Give me that even to this day. And he was the place where he made me feel safe. It was enough being in his presence, and now his presence was gone. I'm so I'm so sorry. Heartbreaking was one of your words, and. That's the only one I can come up with um, yeah. for this. Do you believe that he intentionally overdosed? So there was a part of me that was like, no, this isn't true. This isn't, you know, but um, he had also cut his wrist. Oh, my goodness. So seeing that, there was no question that there was intent. Um, it looked like he had tried to stop it, but between the pills... And the alcohol connection, it was too much for his system to to deal with. Uh, if he had not have been drunk that night, it may not have happened, but it is what it oh is. Oh, my goodness. And there were no real signs that this was a, a possibility. He was not suicidal. I really think it was a perfect storm situation, and it just happened. Oh, my goodness. Nancy, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So... You've done so much work your whole life to survive. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you earn so much admiration from me for Thank that. You. And to be so self-aware and so centered and what I'm hearing is so, so balanced despite everything that has tried to prevent that. Since losing your husband, how have you rebuilt your life and how... How do you feel good now? What makes you feel good? <laughs> so it wasn't easy. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, initially, so I, I, I think one of the biggest things for me, there were a couple of things that really came out of this. One is the ability and willingness to accept help because at this yeah, point good for you. I needed it. Yeah. And I accepted it from my kids. My two older sons were instrumental in keeping us together and helping. My oldest son was just finishing up his master's degree program and he and his girlfriend moved home. He hadn't lived home in six years and he moved home to help me. What a sweet with kid. His younger, yep. The other one was still in school, college, and he was he wasn't too far away, so he was around and he would help and whatever. And even since then, right, they are very connected to the younger brothers. And the times where it's kind of like, oh my God, a guy really should be talking to them like this. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> their older brother, yeah. I'd call one of their brothers and be like, um, can you deal with this one? <laughs> I love that. And they did. Yeah. <laughs> and now the four of them are so connected. So that's an amazing thing. And I mean, a lot of families go through tragedy and they get blown apart. Yeah. Other families come together and they become this more unified, connected. And that's what happened here for me. So that to me was a huge, huge um, 
success, if you will. The other thing that I realized was I need help, right? I can't, I'm not superwoman. And at the same point in time, I've got kids that are traumatized. I'm traumatized. I'm literally back in the closet with nightmares because I lost my safe place. I, and now when I have a nightmare, I, there's nobody waking me up. So now I'm, I can't pull out of this myself and it takes me hours sometimes to pull myself out. Still today. So I'm learning. It doesn't happen very frequently okay. today, but at that point in time, yeah. six years ago, it was pretty much every night to the point where I, I was afraid to go to sleep. Oh. So I accepted help and I had a dear friend who stepped up and in the middle of the night would take a call and talk me, you know, incoherently just talk to me, yeah. you know. So Thank goodness for those good friends. And it was also work. Yeah. Right. My work. I was at work when this all happened, and so this is very public. And I had people just just embrace me. My my company embraced me. The president of the company called me and said, "Take the time that you need." Yeah. I was like, I only got a few more time off, and he's like, no. and I can't afford. I haven't because they hadn't declared it a suicide. It took three months for the life insurance to come out. So it was. I can't take time off. <laughs> And whatever, I can't travel because I'm now a single parent. So they worked with me. They actually ended up moving down to Georgia and they relocated me a year later. And they basically said, you tell me what you need and we'll we'll, we'll take care of it. Take the time that you need. They realized I knew that I had to get back to work because that's what grounded me. Right. What an incredible company to work for. Oh, yeah. They were amazing. And I, I, you know, if not for them, I'm not sure that it would have that I would have survived it. Do you still work a corporate job? Do you still work with them? I They were bought out now twice. Okay. <laughs> I am still with the company that bought them and that bought them again. Okay. Um, it's not the same place. Um, and the people that were there are no longer there. They've pretty much all moved on. Right. Um, but it's, you know, for me, it's okay. So when did you start sharing your story? So I, uh, it was something that I didn't share a lot. And a lot of that, I think, was because I learned earlier on that people responded weird. Sure. Yeah, they don't <laughs> right? know what to say or do. They don't yeah. know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't know what they, I'm asking them for. They don't know. And so very often people saw me as um, maybe shy or, or snobbish because, it, you know, people would be talking about that, you know, having a conversation and people would be talking about their their childhood. And I wouldn't say anything. I couldn't contribute because my childhood was, I mean, how do, what right. do I say? Right. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I started sharing more openly with individuals um, as I kind of came to terms. I shared with my kids and my siblings, you know, all along because they were so open, so public, right? But I know he had adopted through the foster care system, so it was public there as well uh-huh. because they had my personal records. Right. But uh, when I was 49 years old, 46 years old, I met the president of the school that my kids were going to was another incest survivor. And it was the first time that I had openly met another incest survivor. And it was just like, oh, my God. Not only does somebody empathize with me, which is what my husband was doing, and is supportive and whatever. This person gets me. This person understands in a way that nobody else can. 
And I, I started formulating plans to, okay, I need to kind of, my kids were getting older. I needed kind of the next phase kind of thing in life. And we started, you know, coming up with plans. And then my husband died. And in healing from his death and this roaring back of all my childhood's demons just floored me. I, I didn't understand that, you know, I had different perspectives, right? That as you go through life, you go through life with different things will help, will trigger and will create a new sense of something that you need to work through. And so I started looking around for support groups that... Um, I found a life after loss, uh, widows and widowers groups. But again, uh, and why they were very helpful, they were warm people and they're still friends today. They didn't understand that component. They tended to be older. Um, they didn't have young kids still in the home. They weren't dealing with the suicide. And now on top of that, they're not dealing with uh, a, an incestuous childhood that has kind of come back at the, with the vengeance. Right. So for me... I knew that this was something, it became my calling. It became something that, it, it, it was 25 years later after my father had died, and there were still no resources available to people to talk about this, to deal with it, to connect with people. And so I, over the next few years, I had to kind of get to a point where I was okay, that my family was okay, that my kids were okay. And once that happened, I started down the path. I, I, I went back to school. I became a life coach. And I started a company to help other incest survivors. Not from, I'm not a therapist, and I don't pretend to be. What I am is a fellow survivor who gets it, who understands that people go through things at different points in time, and sometimes you just need someone who can understand where you're coming from. And as much as people try to understand, until you've been there, there's just no way that you can. And it's like any other group. It's like so having cancer. It's um, losing a child. It's whatever. You can't understand that. Unless you, you can empathize. Yeah, you're totally right about that. Yeah. And so I created a, a, a group that, and I, I have a podcast as well, because I'm just, it's where Yana comes in. It's the... Yana, it's a it's a word that it's an acronym for you are not alone. Oh, Yana, you are not alone. I love that. And I, I, so I'm I'm a big dog person because <laughs> the big dogs were were um, huge in my childhood. It was my one reprieve. I had a Saint Bernard, who my father was afraid of, and so when it thundered and lightning, my dog would be able to come in because he was terrified. And <laughs> those are the nights oh, that my goodness. I, the nights I you had were safety. Safe. Exactly. Yeah. So big dogs are important to me. So the first anniversary of my husband's death um, is the birthday, the birth of my dog that I have now. And her name is Yana because she's my symbol of you that. and not alone. I yeah. love that. I really do. And I love. So remind us again, what's the name of your podcast? The podcast is called Tale of the Bell. And it's the same as the company. Yeah. And again, I'm an actuary, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm a math geek. <laughs> and if you think about the bell curve. <laughs> I love that. It's the tail end of the bell curve. Meaning, if you think about life experiences, it, it's you could think about it in terms of a bell curve, right? And, and let me just explain that a bit. So if you think about like people's heights, when you, when you put them on a plot them all, you'll end up with like a shape of a bell, like the Liberty Bell. Uh-huh. And the... 
really short people may be on one side and the really tall people are going to be on the other side, but most people are going to kind of come into that middle right. or roughly around that same. So the extremes, the endpoints, the t- is called the tail. And, it's, and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and people don't, you know, you don't necessarily know other people that are also in that tail. So tail of the bell symbolizes that end point uh, ending curve that, you know, there's fewer people there and they're harder to find and to connect with each other. I love that. I think it's really wonderful that you're willing to put yourself out there and support other people and offer all these resources and that you've taken all of this trauma in your life and turned it into something that works for you, um, that allows you to give back and to to be supportive of others. How does this integrate? This is like a super long interview. I'm sorry. And listeners, this is, we usually do 40 minute interviews, but I just didn't feel like we could rush this. I wanted to, to honor every element of this and, and give it its, its due space. How does this integrate at work now? This is obviously out there. Everybody knows. How has it changed the way you go into a corporate environment? So I, once I became a life coach, I had always been a very much a manager that was very empathetic because I've had people that stepped up for me and made me feel accepted. And I turned that around and did that for my people. So I am a very people person <laughs> manager. Um, if something's going on, it's, you know, it, it, you don't have to tell me what it is, but if you need some time, you need some time. And when you're helpful and you're flexible and you're willing to work with people, I found that people are willing to give back to you. Yeah. So I ended up, <laughs> I tend to end up with the teams that are almost kind of wounded warriors, but they're amazing teams sure. because they feel respected they feel accepted they and they're 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 loyal and they you know they come together and they help each other beyond my immediate team i work with an organization a company that um, has a large india um, employee base and the india culture is very much a male dominated culture and for me it was a challenge and so I'm a, I'm a problem solver, right? So one of the things that I did was I had to come to terms with, do I want to leave? Do, can I deal with this? Right. Or is this, or what do I do? And I'm not one to give up. So I had gone to my manager and then did the department head and said, I want to start a program that if we're going to be involved here and we're trying to embrace women, then I want to start a mentoring program for the India-based women using Western women and men to help them to step into the, them being who they are. And so I started a mentoring program and I actually shared my story to the India base of, um, it was called women of the world. Wow. And I shared my story to 300 female colleagues in India as a, you know what, no matter where you come from, no matter what's going on, there is always a way to something to, to, to own who you are to be okay with who you are and to step into it. That's wonderful. I love Mm -hmm. that. And what a gift you're able to give everybody, um, how, how much you've been able to take something so awful and turn it into such a wonderful gift for others. And to me, that is something worth celebrating. I'd love to ask you, how do you celebrate? And even more so, 
has it been challenging for you to celebrate? We know you celebrate your me day, which is incredible. How do you like to celebrate? And is that an easy or difficult thing for you to do? So I think, you know, this question was on your list of questions. It was. (laughs) It made me think about it. And as I'm, I really struggled with this question. And I think because it made me realize that first you have to recognize and accept that you have something to be celebratory about. Because I had, uh, survivors um, cope in different ways. I coped, a lot of them turned to um, different kinds of forms of addiction, to escape, some of them, there's all kinds of ways. I tended to be the type of person who became a perfectionist, who I was addicted to work. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) And because that's where I felt where I belonged. And, but I, I was, anything that I did, no matter how good I did it, there was always a flaw with it. There was always something wrong. And so I couldn't celebrate because it wasn't perfect. So I think some of the things that really over time that I learned was that to let it go, that it doesn't, I don't have to be perfect. Nobody's yes, perfect. Yes, ma'am. Nobody has to be perfect. In fact, my, my 10 year old would tell you it's boring to be perfect. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but it, so it, I guess part of the thing is to stop beating myself up yeah. <laughs> is one way and recognizing that there is something to celebrate. But the other ways that I do is I just now, aside from my me day, so my me day is, is a special day for me. My me day was, I mean, I've done some crazy things in my me, <laughs> on my me day. Um, but it's a, to me, just the daily kind of how do I celebrate successes, it's about taking a moment to give myself a chance and a break to just take some time yeah. off. It's just, you know what? I, I don't, I don't unwind very easy. I'm still constantly on the go on the guard. Sure. Some of that is by need still. Right. Um, sure. But and some of it might tend still to, be survival. I imagine. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's not bad, right? It, I it mean, just is. It channels. It just is. Mm-hmm. And I've learned to accept that it just is. And so that's how integration comes in. It's just a part of who I am. And I stopped beating myself up for being who I am. Good for you. That's a wonderful way to celebrate. I love that. <laughs> I think it's great. Uh, I celebrate by not giving myself a hard freaking time. Yeah, I, yep. I love it. I think it's amazing. Um, and I think it's such a great, again, thing to share with our listeners that they, it, celebration can be as simple as that. I'm going to be okay being okay with me. And I'm going to honor mm-hmm. that. And that is one wonderful way to celebrate. And I know a lot of folks who listen to this show who really struggle with that perfectionism and allowing themselves to just be human or perfectly imperfect. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I'd love to know, I know you said you give back a lot and you've become very involved in community and, and charitable organizations. What is your favorite charitable organization to support? So I'm going to say this too. One is one that I co-founded. My children, my adopted twins are special needs. And I recognized they had a lot of difficulty dealing with their dad's death for a number of different reasons when they found him. But yeah. um, And when I moved to Georgia, I had a group of people who were experiential groups that uh, uh, therapists one was an equine assisted therapy program, and one was a program for kids that were special needs or on the on the on the autism 
spectrum usually, but also trauma-based kids. Right. But they, they weren't getting, talk therapy wasn't working for them. So it was getting them to experience things, you know, taking a llama trek, <laughs> um, doing kinds of crazy stuff. Sure. But those types of kids, when you put those, t- it, the, getting them to camp is extremely expensive because of the number of counselor to, to child ratio that has to be and the type of counselor that needs to be involved. These can't be, you know, 17 year old kids. Right. Right. Because they're dealing with issues. So it's very expensive. So um, a couple of mothers and got together and we created a, a, a nonprofit called Koru Kids Connections. So that's my favorite. Okay. I love that. <laughs> but yeah. But I also have another major one and that's Rain, mm. which is the Rape yes. Abuse Incest National Network. Yes. Rain is an incredible network and we've had a number of guests who select that. We um are big supporters of of Rain. Uh well, we will have these be your charities of the week. We will give them lots of love. I ask all of the listeners as always to get to know the organizations. Give what you can whether that's time or money or you know, social media likes and shares, whatever you can do to support their mission. We do believe here at the Brave Files that coming together in this way is the number one way we can change the world for the better. So thank you for the work that you're doing there. That's awesome. Thank you. I would like to ask about your three words again. Can you share those with us one last time? So heartbreaking, integration, and Yana. Heartbreaking, sadly, is um, very easy to understand. And my heart, I am going to sit with this interview for days. Um, there's a lot to process. I can't, I can't even imagine. I almost feel guilty saying that because, of course, your processing is, is continuous and ongoing. But so many things to, to sit with and to be a better friend and advocate and supporter and listener um, and use, use what you're sharing to have be better able to help other people. Uh, and then you were gracious and shared what Yana meant. And I love that. Talk to us for a brief moment about integration. So again, math geek, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all about bringing it together. So to me, integration is not saying that this happened or that happened. This is a part of who I am. Yeah. My All of my life experiences, good and bad, brought me to where I am right now. And by integrating them and honoring them for what they were and what, and what they meant, it's integrated into who I am today. Yeah, it sure has. And you're just such a, an incredible inspiration. Just a, I, I, I thank you for your willingness to be so transparent and vulnerable and honest. And I know you're now doing this a lot in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so this is probably slightly easier. I, though I, I can't imagine that it ever is 100% easy. I would, how, is that true? Is it just easy to share it's, or does it always hurt a little? You know, it's the, what I've learned is when I do do an interview or I do speak or, or whatever, there's a reason to do it. And I do it because nobody should ever feel the way that I felt. Yeah. There are people out there today, I mean, incest is still an epidemic and it's not something that we're dealing with very well and we don't talk about it. If I can do just a little bit to make it more that we become aware of it, you know, like even Me Too didn't address it. You're right. Absolutely. 
So the more we talk about it, the more we become aware of it, the more we are openly, we can come together to do something better. And for the people that have survived it, to know that they're not different, they're not isolated, that they're not alone. So to me, that's what it all comes down to. That's amazing. I can't thank you enough for being here, for being willing, for the work that you're doing. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit at a loss for words. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Heather. Listeners, I normally do a, a nice big wrap. I, I feel like Nancy just did that in a really beautiful way. And I'll leave you there with those words that she shared. I want to thank you for being here with us and for taking the time to to grow and do more and give more and find ways to live bravely every moment of every day. This is Heather Vickery reminding you today and always to go out and choose bravely. The Brave Files is proudly supported by Audible. If you enjoy listening to podcasts, you're sure to love listening to your favorite books on Audible. Get your free 30-day trial complete with a credit for a free audiobook download today simply by visiting audibletrial.com slash thebravefiles. Again, that's visiting audibletrial.com slash thebravefiles. You've been listening to The Brave Files, stories from people living courageously. To learn more about the show, find our show notes, or get some great bonus content, visit thebravefilespodcast.com. And we'd love to know what you think. You can give us a call at 312-646-0205. Let us know your thoughts on the episode, the show in general, or maybe share with us how you're out choosing bravely. This episode is brought to you by Vickery & Co. Success Coaching, coaching that helps you maintain a life well-lived and a business well-run. Learn more at vickeryandco.com. Our music is produced by Matt Lewis. Follow him on Instagram at mattmmusic or visit his website, theunionband.com. We couldn't do any of this without our extraordinary audio engineer, Andrew Olson. Learn more about him and check out his work at findandrewolson.com. And special thanks to our associate producer, Kim Statler. I'm your host and executive producer, Heather Vickery. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week.